welcome. You're listening to But Seriously, What is Engineering? With me, Kartiki Gupta. This is a podcast series from the University of Queensland that explores all corners of engineering. From an undergraduate engineering degree to continuing research work, today we talk to Dr. Carolyn Jacobs and Katerina Horrigan. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Kat, I'm going to start with you. Tell us what a day in your career looks like today. Currently a researcher at a group at the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology at UQ. I'm continuing research that I've been doing in my PhD, but sort of in a broader context. And I'm researching uh, natural uh, materials, um, in particular fibres from multiple plants and to um, make sustainable materials. So I've gained my skills in materials research and engineering. So now as a research assistant, I test the materials, I analyze the results in my everyday work, and I provide reports and test results of the material that I'm testing. Um, in one of our early conversations, Kat, you mentioned that you did your undergraduate degree overseas. Where did you study and what was your undergraduate degree? Yeah, so my experience is quite broad. So I am from Poland and I started my uh, engineering in chemical and process engineering back there in Poland. And during my engineering uh, undergrad studies, I have uh, gone on exchange to Denmark. And after that, I continued my master's degree in Denmark. So that was in chemical and biochemical engineering. And during that period, I went on exchange to Australia and I came to UQ, uh, did a semester of exchange here. And after that, I continued with a semester of a research project, which is a master thesis that you need to do at the end of your master master's degree. And that brought me here to continue doing my PhD here at UQ. So you loved Australia this much that you ended up staying here. Yes, that's right. Speaking of travelling and going overseas, Carolyn, I'm keen to hear from you your experiences overseas. I never really knew what I wanted to do, but growing up I got to see a lot of PhD students and international visitors because my dad is an academic here at UQ. I knew I wanted to travel. When I came to doing engineering at UQ as an undergraduate, I decided that I wanted to continue on and do a PhD and I was lucky enough to be invited to do a PhD with the Centre for Hypersonics and one of the great things about that group is that they really encourage international travel for the PhD students and I was fortunate enough that at the time I was studying my supervisor at a conference met um, a few other people from France and he got chatting with this group and they decided to set up a Crotitel program, an exchange program for PhD students where I'm actually able to be enrolled at UQ and then internationally in France, which meant that as part of that program, I got to go for a year exchange to France, which was pretty cool, except that I hadn't learned much French because I thought I was going to go to Germany. (laughs) Uh, So I got to France and let's just say um, I was very lucky to have an accommodating boss who let me take the first three weeks to pick up some French. <laughs> but yeah, I loved it so much. I actually, um, when I finished my PhD, I went back to work for the same school, but as a research postdoctorate fellow with the French space agency, CNES. And I stayed in France for a few years. Tell us um, a bit about what is your research area? At UQ, I've recently been hired as a lecturer, so a teaching research academic, in mechanical engineering. 
but not in the Center for Hypersonics. So it's very tempting to go and uh, continue all this hypersonics research. I was originally interested in atmospheric entry, so like spacecraft and satellites and mostly focused on how the heating works when a spacecraft's entering at like 10 or 20 kilometres a second into an atmosphere. But what's really interesting is that when I was able to study the the gas in front of the space, the vehicles, which is plasma, Um, It led me to actually working with some other research groups that were working in slightly different types of plasma. My school in France was École Centrale Paris, and they merged with the school, an electrical engineering school called Superlac, to become Centrale Superlac. And within that group of electrical engineers, there was a group studying this low-temperature plasma where you can actually, um, it's like an electric discharge. And it's plasma in the sense it's excited gas um, and we were using the same sort of diagnostics as we did for the atmospheric entry but it had all sorts of cool applications like what we were looking at which is biomedical research and trying to in in this one program we were looking at um, sterilizing the inner surface of something like a catheter tube using plasma and so what I'm interested in at the moment is trying to bring some of that research to UQ and look at medical applications of plasma. That's actually quite a phenomenal area of research. You mentioned um, you're a UQ engineering graduate and you've researched and taught overseas where English wasn't really the working language. I'm keen to hear about um, your experience in that respect. It was an experience. I'll just put it that way. I mean, I always wanted to travel. So Getting to go to France was great, and I was really keen to get involved in the culture and learn the language. That was a given. The first thing I did when I got there was try and learn the language. As a PhD student and a postdoc, it was quite stressful trying to use French for work. I'd say that um, socially I got better quite quickly, but in terms of being able to use it for work, it probably took me three years of living in France before I was comfortable going into a lab and speaking to everyone in French and talking to everyone in meetings and stuff as French. After two years as a postdoc, I was lucky enough to be offered a permanent lecturing position in France. That's about when I had no choice but to get quite confident in French. The school actually sent me to a special immersive program for a couple of weeks to to get my confidence up. And I got to do some practice classes, but because I changed groups to this electrical department, we didn't really use English very often and everyone was so wonderful because there was just all this support. Everyone knew I was trying to learn French and they would always speak to me slowly. They'd offer to help me, but we'd always only speak French. There was no English in the lab. You were learning a new language. You were lecturing a course that wasn't really your area of of research that must be such a a challenging experience for you it was terrifying at times but it's surprising how being in france and having to teach in, in french actually helped me a lot because i wasn't as worried about what i was teaching i didn't actually focus on whether or not i said the right thing because I'd done all the prep to try and teach it in French. So I found it was actually a little liberating in the end because I'd done all this prep work to learn about whatever I was teaching that day, to practice the language, to to get ready for questions. And when I got up in front of the class, I'd 
always be a bit nervous, but I sort of knew in the back of my head it didn't matter as much if I made a mistake because everyone was expecting me to because they they knew that I wasn't a native French speaker, so they weren't I didn't feel like I was being judged for my mistakes as much as if I were teaching in English. I mean, I know you mentioned that the staff at the university were quite supportive. What about the students? I didn't have too much contact with the students outside of class. The project students who worked with me were pretty patient. To be honest, most of them used working with me as a chance to practice their English. At the engineering schools in France, there's a requirement for the students when they graduate to be quite a strong level in English. A lot of the students actually took the opportunity to, because there weren't many native English speakers over there, they took the opportunity to try and practice some English. When they weren't confident, obviously, we, we spoke in French, but you know, it just meant that everyone was pretty patient with my French. Yeah, wow. And what a great way to, I guess, have that two-way learning um, learning experience and teaching experience, really. Kat, I'm keen to hear from you. You've had sort of the opposite experience. Tell us about that. Yes, that's right. Well, when I started my master's, that's when I first started learning in English, really, my engineering degree. And it was quite stressful. When I was in Denmark, I think I felt a bit more confident because everyone else, English was the second language for everybody else. So I wasn't as stressed over there. But when I came here to UQ and did my semester of exchange, that's when I actually felt like thinking about what I'm saying in English came sort of first. And later I was thinking about the content. So I had the opposite experience. I actually felt very intimidated and focused on the language first. At the beginning, when I started tutoring during my PhD, that also was very, it was stressful and sometimes would probably um, mean that I wasn't saying what I wanted to say every time. But after a while, I got used to it and I stopped worrying about what other people say because I knew that obviously I have a different accent and I'll never properly speak exactly as Australian. So after a while, I, I sort of broke that boundary and I got more confident. Can I just ask you a question, Kat? Your native language compared to English, how similar are the scientific terms? Because that was one advantage I had in French is that a lot of the scientific language is very similar. It's just with a pronunciation thing. Yeah. And so like classic English and the old court language mm. in England, like... No, it's, it's very different. And a funny thing is actually we do the comma when we want to put the digits. So if we it's, it's 10... Point one, we put 10 comma one. So that was a bit tricky when I started learning here that when I put the comma, just I wasn't thinking about it. People thought it's um, it's a thousand. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so, yeah. So little things like that, you just have to get used to it and yeah. switch your brain. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Well, such a such a massive learning curve for both of you, um, not just um, engineering-wise, but learning multiple languages and teaching in those languages. And, and but, but it's so great to hear that both of you have had staff 
and students that have been supportive and have sort of helped you through your learning experiences in different countries. Yes, absolutely. And during my exchange, I've been studying in groups with Australian um, students and they were always very, very kind and they would explain anything I wouldn't know to me. So, And Kat, did you, um, like Carolyn did, uh, an immersive course for French, did you do one for English here? Uh, no, 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 I didn't. I've started learning English when I was about six or seven in school, but obviously it's a conversation English rather than scientific. So that scientific and engineering English came in much, much later. <laughs> Carolyn, you mentioned that you have supervised PhD students. What's different about it when you were a PhD student to now? I think that the biggest difference I've seen between the students that I've just had graduate and when I was studying is the time limit. It's three years to do a PhD. It usually gets extended to about three and a half, and then by the time everyone graduates, it's about four years in total. And I think especially for international students, if it goes beyond that four years, there are visa um, constraints. Research fees uh, as well, so yeah. For me, as a PhD student, we weren't as... we, We were obviously signed up for the same length of time, so our scholarship was three years, extended to maybe three and a half years, perhaps. As an Australian student, I didn't have to pay the fees if we ran over the scholarship. So the end result was like I changed my studies completely to sign up for this Cotitel with France and we actually changed my project and it ended up extending it quite significantly. Something like that would be quite difficult for a student these days because there is that strict time limit and it's very difficult to go beyond that four years. Additionally, as an experimentalist, I can say that it's really difficult to try and do an experimental program if there's such a time limit um, as a PhD student because you've really got sometimes if you're trying to develop a new facility or do something that pushes the bounds of what a facility or an experiment can do, there's a lot of trial and error involved. And sometimes, I mean, I could redo an experiment four times, which is okay if it's just a 10-minute experiment, but if it's a month of experimentation and you've got to wait your turn to get back in the tunnel, uh, it can end up being an extra six months to do another campaign. Difficulties that students have now would probably be trying to make sure that they stay a lot more focused and a lot more on target. We had, I think, a little more flexibility in what we could look at and how we could approach a problem, especially if we wanted to do a bit of travelling overseas because it's a bit difficult to try and learn how to use an experimental facility some somewhere overseas. And if your experiments don't work the first time, it's difficult to go back. We were just discussing, I guess, just before this podcast started, that most PhD graduates, they don't end up in academics. But Carolyn, I'm keen to hear from you, where did your passion stem from for the academic stream? My dad is a, what is he now? He's an associate professor, I think. Oh, he prefers read it. But I grew up kind of seeing the PhD students coming and the international visitors and, you know, we, we'd go down the park, we'd launch rockets, um, we'd, we'd mess around with the design of the parachute and then send the PhD students to go fish the little soldier men out of the, <laughs> the lake when the rocket came down unexpectedly. I kind of grew up thinking it'd be pretty cool to do a PhD because they get to do some interesting stuff. I sort of fell into academia because when I finished my PhD, I 
found that what I wanted to do was probably a little bit tricky in industry because if you were to work in industry, I sort of got the impression that, well, I have to do the sort of research that the company is interested in. And at the moment, like when I join the company, that might be exactly what I'm wanting to work on. Mm -hmm. But maybe in three years' time, they take a different route and I really want to do something else. It's, it's a bit more constraining. And so I decided to stay in academia because although we are constrained as well here by what, what grant funding we can get and what finance we can find for our projects, there is a bit more flexibility in what sort of projects we can propose. And so there is always the potential to sort of have a pet project that is on the back burner. When we've got some funding, we can work on this a little bit. And that's that's what drew me to it, I guess. What I get from that is that you can really truly follow your passion if you are an academic and really hone into that research area that you're interested in. So Kat, you took a different path after you finished your PhD. Tell us about that. I actually started my PhD because I was inspired by my colleagues I worked with back in Denmark. So during my master's, I was working part-time in a medical devices company in the R&D group. Most of my colleagues um, didn't hold a PhD, and I was amazed with their ability to critically think and design experiments and uh, wonderfully present their data and they were my role models and I really was thinking wow I want to be like that one day how about I'm going to do a PhD (laughs) and I thought wow am I really going to be like them now I'm thinking back and I'm thinking hmm I don't know (laughs) if I am (laughs) but so that was my motivation I saw really great role models in industry and I do want to continue my career in industry. When I was back in Europe, um, I saw that a lot of PhD graduates would continue their jobs in industry. And there's a lot of R&D uh, research going on where you can find job and sort of stay in that research environment, but experience a little bit more, I guess, maybe in the, that project management environment and leading being a leader in project that's my my ideal uh, career path in the future yeah and tell us a little bit more about your research Kat Um, so in my PhD I was studying nanocellulose fibers derived from Australian arid grass spinifex and so I was trying to understand in, in depth the role of the of the structure of the fibers and their composition in relation to their different properties. And the aim was to uh, also find more sustainable ways to obtain those nanofibers from the plant. Uh, So we were looking at reducing the energy and chemical demand so to produce more sustainable materials. And we would like to use those in the future as an alternative to plastics. So there's a huge uh, opportunity in natural materials to be used um, as an alternative to fossil fuel-derived materials. And I was very passionate uh, about that. I still am. (laughs) What a great area of research. Um, I'm truly inspired by the research you do, Kat. It's it's just fantastic. So you have recently handed in your thesis. How do you feel? (laughs) I feel a big relief. (laughs) But it didn't sink in. I think a few days ago, I actually woke up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, what am I doing? I should be writing. 
and I realized, <laughs> oh, I've already handed it in. <laughs> but I'm still waiting for the um, feedback. So I'm not a doctor yet. So still waiting for that. It'll t- take a couple of months. So close. So yes. close. <laughs> such, a, such a great journey you've had. We've reached the end of this episode, but before we go, we have a tiny segment called Fast Facts in which we get to know you both a bit better with some fast questions. Are you ready? No. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Favourite holiday spot? Greece. Mm, Greece. The Greek <laughs> island? Yes. Oh, lovely. Uh, which which one's your favourite? Uh, went to Rhodos. That is, mm. that is lovely. Um, I had my honeymoon in Santorini oh. and Mykonos. I like camping. I like just getting away from the computer. Yeah. It's not, yeah. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. What's one thing that listeners don't know about you? It's a lot of things. <laughs> I love grains. I love grainy food, like quinoa, millet. I love them. Mm. I'm obsessed with grains. <laughs> <laughs> music. I like to do a lot of music. I find that it just relaxes me and lets me break away from work. Yeah. Do you Do you play an instrument? A couple, yeah. Oh, which ones? So piano, I haven't played in a long time though, but I'm going to get back into that. <laughs> um, flute, viola uh, and guitar. Oh, wow. So in, wow. in France I actually um, use the flute to try and uh, make some friends and get to know people and yeah. sort of integrate a little bit with life mm. so that I wasn't just going to work. You have so much yeah. talent, Carolyn. I yeah. don't know how you fit yeah. everything <laughs> in your life. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> just out of curiosity, how many languages do you speak now? Fluently, probably only English and French, but I did spend seven years learning German. Unfortunately, when I speak German, it now just morphs into French. But um, <laughs> yeah, I've been dabbling in a couple of others. Yeah. Would you ever go back and live in France? I loved living in France. It was just a little bit difficult to see my family. Yeah. So all my family's kind of East Coast, Australia, yeah. mostly in Brisbane. Finally, who or what is your biggest inspiration? I've got so many. (laughs) I guess I'd say one of my colleagues from my work was my biggest inspiration to start my PhD and she was my biggest role model and was very encouraging to come to Australia. Um, So I'd say her, she was my biggest inspiration, yeah, and thanks to her I've I've achieved what I have. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) fantastic. A little strange, Angela Merkel, German Chancellor. Yeah. Just because intelligent women can get out there and do that sort of stuff. Well, thank you both for joining us today. It was great to have you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. (laughs) If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review. It'll help others to find the series. My name is Katiki Gupta.